Hi, I'm Jake Morker. I'm Ellen Levita. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. What do you want to do with your body after you die? Oh, I feel like that's a long way off to think about. But, but do you have any kind of like ideal situation that you would like uh, to be? Could you just plant me under the lemon tree or something? <laughs> the lemon <laughs> tree. Actually, my dad has always maintained that he just wants to be buried in a cardboard box. He doesn't want the frou-frou of a coffin. He just thinks a cardboard box is the simplest and probably it's pretty sustainable. It breaks down quickly, I imagine. Yeah, but... Like that—that's not really something to be remembered by, right? Like, or maybe it is. That—that that was the guy that's... who like buried himself <laughs> in a cardboard box. But I—it's interesting. I've been asked this question a couple of times before, and it's like, do I want to do the thing that's good for the planet now? Thinking in terms of this show, or do I want to do it the standard way and then have a proper burial? What's and, the standard and... way? Or have a proper burial? Yeah, we'll have a proper burial. Get into a coffin, go onto the ground, and have, have a we... gravestone to remember me but by. But really, haven't don't we run out of space to bury people? Aren't there towns in the world that run out of space to bury people? Yeah, well, that's the interesting thing and a story that we'll be looking at today to actually look at what is the most sustainable death option in terms of <laughs> what do you do with everyone's Forward planning. bodies? <laughs> Forward planning. And also, what is the Anthropocene and what does it say about us, the human race? Is that our era that we're in? It's it's our era and it's I think it's not necessarily our era, it's our epoch. Epoch, that's the word. Yeah, and so uh, that's essentially the era or epoch that we're living in now and notes like when humans began to have a detrimental effect on the planet. Right. Find out more about that a little later on, but first... So, so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. So these are called cordyceps. Um, actually, I think this is an ant. This is an ant. Um, and what happens is the cordyceps release their spores, and then the spores land on the insect's back. And then the spores slowly start to soak into the insect and start to eat the insect away. Yep. The mushroom literally eats the ant from the inside out. But that's not even the weirdest part. Then what happens is, in order for the mushrooms to have the best chance of survival, they make the ant climb to the highest point in the forest. So they literally use mind control, and the ant climbs its way to the top highest tree. When it's at the top, the mushroom knows it's at the highest point, and then it kills the ant. Then the ant's at the top of the tree dead, and then the mushroom grows out of the ant and then releases its spores at the top of the forest. So it's given itself the best chance to maximise how it releases its spores. This is Philip. He's the founder of a business called Fungi Mental, which has made him somewhat of a mushroom expert. I know this is not like an insectologist or whatever, but do they realise what's happening? I don't think they do. I think it's just like, it's probably like them being really high and just like staggering around in a bit of a, in a, bit of a daze. Think, think about the... If this has mind-altering you know, chemicals in there, could it, could it help humans in the sense that if you've got someone who has got late-onset dementia or something like that, you know, I mean, obviously this makes an ant go to the highest point and kill itself, but are there chemicals in there that we could research that could help humans? Um, and right now, the study of macology is only probably 50 years old, and we only reckon we've studied around 2 to 5% of all mushrooms. So... And we've already found penicillin and yeast and all these amazing things that are part of everyday life. What else can we find? 
So we already know mushrooms are yummy. Some have antiviral properties, some can be used in certain medical treatments, and obviously some should be avoided. But with so much still to learn about them, Philip says we also need to think about new ways to grow mushrooms. Um, I, I actually saw a TED talk about two years ago um, by a guy called Gunter Pauli, who founded this thing called the Blue Economy, and he was talking about how you could make protein from waste. Because obviously with the rise of the middle classes globally and in China and India, um, more people are wanting access to protein. And cow farming ain't going to cut it um, <laughs> with all these billions of people coming into the middle classes. So I thought, you know, these mushrooms, they're 33% protein. If we can create a sustainable model to grow them, then the, this has the potential to feed, you know, hundreds of millions of people in the future if we, if we adopt this sort of model. And what is Philip's model? Growing mushrooms out of old coffee grounds. Oyster mushrooms will happily eat coffee, 100% coffee, all day, every day. <laughs> How did you come across, come to this realisation that mushrooms can grow in old coffee grounds? So we mix the coffee waste with um, grain spawn, which is grain that mushrooms have been given earlier in the stage of life, and they kind of, the mushrooms start to eat the grain. And then what you do is you slowly introduce that grain into the coffee, and then the mushrooms spread out from the grain through the coffee. And where are they getting all this coffee? No, not from cafes. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Jetstar Flight JQ11 through to Tokyo Narita. From airports. So we, rather than going around 70 to 100 different coffee shops and collecting little bits everywhere, we drive to the airport and we get four, 500 kilos in one trip. And we do that twice a week. Um, yeah, because everyone's kind of coming in, coming out. And like if you're in an airport, everyone's tired as hell and just yeah. wants a coffee. Exactly. And um, Heathrow Airport in London approached us about this idea and we might hopefully be building a farm there. Heathrow Airport drinks 35,000 cups of coffee a day, which is about two and a half thousand kilos of waste every day that's also like the cups and the lids and stuff no that's just the grounds oh that's just the grounds that's just the grounds two and a half thousand kilos of waste a day so 17,000 kilos a week so we could grow around 3,400 kilos of mushrooms a week at Heathrow Airport if we got all their coffee do you have any I can try <laughs> come into the tunnel and try yeah. pretty spicy might be a little bit dry but you know you can try this one. Oh yeah pretty spicy spicy why are they spicy? It's the type of mushroom they are, and it's also how they're grown. So um, in the wild, wild mushrooms are super, super spicy and earthy. Um, and that's, what this, that's the similar sort of flavor that you get out of them in, in the grown in coffee. Does, does the coffee add any additional flavoring, or is it literally just like... It doesn't have flavoring, but there is rumor that it makes them grow a little bit quicker, like the bit of a caffeine kickstart. But yeah. But. So can I eat this? Yeah, of course. Do I just pick it off? Just, <laughs> just grab, a, grab a little bit off the edge, yeah. Oh... Okay. Oh yeah, they're, they're not like your like standard. No, they're, they're, they're packed full of flavor, which is why chefs love them. And um, one of the things we're doing, we're developing um, a part of the company called Foodie Mental, where we actually take parts of food that you wouldn't normally use because you can't eat them. So, for example, the stems of these mushrooms are super rubbery. You'd never want to eat that. But why throw that out when we can freeze dry that, mix it with salt, and make a beautiful mushroom salt? So we're so we're making these different types of foods that are from rescued food or food you wouldn't normally use to actually sell them to public, raise awareness on food waste, because that's part of the big problem with food security in the future. It's not growing the food, we throw one third of our food away. So it's crazy. Um, 
So if we can make delicious food out of stuff you wouldn't normally use, then that's a, a, another positive and another educational point that we're trying to get across. Any last tidbits or any last fun facts about mushrooms or anything that you've done with Fungi Mental? So oyster mushrooms can actually eat up oil spills as well. And so they can break down hydrocarbons, they can soak up nuclear waste, soak up um, heavy metal waste. And we're writing kids' books about all this stuff. So we're, think Mr. Men, but we've got Ollie the Oyster, who's our little character that's developing. He's got his own little personality going on. So he'll be our first book. Um, and it's all about getting kids young and getting, an, getting them embraced in what mushrooms can do and not just mushrooms but sustainability as a whole um, so we want to tell these stories in a really fun way like Ollie the Oyster Mushroom going around and cleaning up an oil spill from a beach and he sees a hungry person so he chops his hair off and feeds them it and yeah. you know these, these you can you can use hair to clean up oil spills as well did you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly exactly so all these all these things um, that we want to try and make fun and relevant for kids and we want to do road shows around schools with our mushroom master classes um, and just get a whole generation of kids inspired into mycology and sustainability so when they're coming into school and college and uni they're not just thinking about money they're thinking about what career path they can have and that sustainability is now a really viable career path where not only can they make money but they can have you know a net positive impact across social and environmental causes as well. Philip White founder of Fungimental. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SCR 107.3. So going back to what we were talking about at the start of getting rid of your body or what to do with your body after you die, would you ever donate it to science? So, you know, like let my limbs be used in a doctor's, training doctor's class? I guess so, yeah. I I don't even know what they do with it. Like maybe they use certain limbs or they use certain organs or... Like it sounds creepy, but you know, if I'm being part of some fruition research, <laughs> then I'll obviously do it. Donate my body to research or just donate all my organs to the hospital, to people who need it. But you know it's actually funny. We're doing you'll hear in this story, but when it comes to people who are organ donors, there are only so many organs that people actually need, right? So after those organs are then taken out of the body, a lot of the bodies actually just go to the crematorium and then go through the same process of being put in a coffin and then get cremated. Ah, okay. So we wanted to find out what you want to do with yours. Um, have you thought about what you want to do with your body when you die? No, definitely not. Oh, <laughs> uh, this might be a bit of a sensitive topic. Oh, I heard about this firework cremation service, which seems pretty badass, but a bit of a novelty. Definitely buried in the ground for sure. Why? Um, I think it's best left untouched. Um, Members of my family have been cremated, but yeah, I think it's best left to go in the ground as you were. Yeah. And what about donation, organ donation or whole body donation? Um, I don't think anything from my body's worth donating, to be honest. (laughs) But I would probably be, would want to donate my organs, that I know. Being a Muslim, my religion is Islam. My Islam does allow me to donate the parts that are working very well to anyone who is in the need. I can donate my eyes, my heart and everything, lungs, to anyone who is deserving on it. But donating your body to science, would that ever be something that you would consider? Uh, probably not. I'd rather not donate it for science because I don't know what they would want to do with it. No. Why not? because I want all my body parts when I die. I had like a major surgery a couple of months ago, so I reckon 
I want to throw my ashes like in my city in Concepcion, Chile. That's my place and that's where I want to be remembered. In terms of donating to our facility, we have been inundated with requests. We were pleasantly surprised. This is Shari Forbes. She's a forensic scientist from the University of Technology, Sydney. Most people will say, oh, like CSI. So, yeah, that's, and that's how I know they have a, most of their awareness comes from TV. And, I, you know, I see no problem with that, honestly. It's a topic that most people don't discuss. We don't talk about death generally. We certainly don't talk about decomposition. However, Shari definitely does. Shari works with bodies of those who've donated themselves to science. But the bodies aren't in a lab, and they're not stored away only to be brought out for experiments either. They're out in the open, on a body farm. Where is this body farm? It's located... Is that, is that something you can disclose? Yes, we can. It's, well, not, not the address, but it's located uh, at the base of the Blue Mountains, and so it sits right on the outskirts of Sydney. It's actually ideal because missing persons, particularly bushwalkers, are the kinds of scenarios that the police would be investigating and, in fact, do in the Blue Mountains. These bodies are used to recreate forensic investigations so they can figure out real-life scenarios. And so each, each donor is placed in a plot, and as I mentioned, it could be on the surface, it could be in a shallow burial, it could be partly concealed by leaves and, and branches and things, whatever we're trying to mimic. Shari says there are a whole range of things that different researchers are looking at when the bodies decompose on the farm. Her area? Odour. We trap it, is what we say. It's actually just placing a very large hood, a stainless steel hood, over the body, and it traps it under that hood. And then once it's accumulated, we just draw it through a very tiny hole at the top. We just uh, trap it onto that tube, bring it back to the lab, and that links to the way we use cadaver detection dogs to track and locate human remains. I find it interesting as well in that It's a whole other way of approaching death because there's such a social taboo of talking about death as this thing that you want to prolong or you really don't want to have that conversation. But you're essentially at the helm of that conversation but in a completely different way. Yes, uh, I think we definitely provide an alternative option after death but it does get people thinking about their death and so often our donors will sign up after hearing myself or one of my colleagues present and they'll say to me I you know I hadn't really thought about what I wanted done with my body after death until I heard you talk and then I went home and thought about it and I think this is a great idea or even if they're not signing up to us you know I went away and I did something I started to think about that I you know wrote a will or I let my family know. But we don't talk about death um, until often it's too late and then the family's left to make that decision. And how has it changed your attitude towards what happens to us after life? Uh, I can talk about death very easily. Um, I probably shouldn't, but I do joke about it with my parents. And I think they prefer that I joke than take it too seriously because I I know their um, requests after they're, they're gone and um, that's probably the main thing I need to know. But, um, yeah, I mean, we try to keep it somewhat lighthearted. Uh, they've always been very supportive of what I do. They've never felt squeamish about it, thankfully. Um, they're actually both donating their bodies to science. So, yeah, they, they completely support it. Thank you.
Donating your body to science isn't for everyone. I, for one, find the whole idea a bit confronting as well. But think about how many of us there are. There are cemeteries around the world that literally have no room for even one more grave. Take a place like Mexico City. Remains are only allowed in certain areas for a year before they have to be taken out and somebody else put in. Death is the most inevitable part of life, and ironically, it's the hardest thing for us to talk about. But if we don't talk about it, how do we deal with it? I've been running funeral homes since I was about 16 years old. Um, so, you know, a couple of decades in now. This is Daniel McKee. He's the regional manager of Green Endings Funerals in Western Australia. It's required for the community, and funeral services have changed a lot over the years. Green Endings Funerals still offer burials. So, once again, it's still, still a matter of putting the coffin into the ground, but it's at a slightly um, shorter depth. And what happens there is it allows the um, methane to not build up and it's the methane that turns into CO2 with burials that actually, you know, harms the environment. But today, a lot of people want to be cremated. Predominantly, most people are choosing cremation. In Western Australia, that's getting up to over 80% of people are being cremated. Wow, that's, that is... And how, how eco-friendly or not eco-friendly is that process of cremation? Cremation, surprisingly, once we did all the studies, ends up being almost three times uh, more environmentally friendly than burial. Daniel says this is because of a number of things. The actual process of cremating a body can take on a more eco-friendly mindset in the power that takes to do the cremation, but also what the body is cremated in. And it, it can come down to the selection of coffin that you would choose. With life art, and life art's actually supplied in New South Wales through Guardian Funerals locations. And that's an Enviro board um, biodegradable coffin. So that produces less CO2 levels than if you're, say, burning a, a full wood coffin. Oh, so what, uh, what are these biodegradable coffins made out of? It's an Enviro board, which is a natural fibre compound, but also using recycled materials. But you, you don't have a lot of plastics, and m- most handles on a lot of coffins now are plastics. They're then lined with plastic and all of those type of things. We're using things like cornstarch lining and bits and pieces, which are a lot more environmentally friendly when they're burnt. And then there's the body itself. So it's also things like you know, um, choosing embalming or not embalming. And that's because of the chemicals that are used within that embalming process and um, reducing the amount of plastics that are going in the coffin and that can be done with things like even the soles of shoes. Although Daniel and Shari from The Body Farm come from two completely different worlds, they both agree on one thing. Uh, everyone's curious about what happens after death because, again, it's not a question you ask people. You never have an opportunity to ask someone who actually knows the answer, usually. What I find with our donors is the majority of our donors are later in life and they're the ones who think about death. Um, People my age and younger, we think we're immortal and, and we're just not, you know, that's just not something that's even on our radar. Shari Forbes, Professor of Forensic Science from the University of Technology, Sydney. And a big thanks to Nina Kopel, who helped produce that story.
We're talking about the Anthropocene, Jake. And did you do that thing in high school science where you had to map the timeline of the Earth? I mapped... I don't, the only thing I can remember is just the different dinosaur periods. <laughs> like, I, I think that's part of an own, its own epoch or its own era. But yeah, I only the Jurassic period. The Jurassic, Jurassic and the Triassic. Oh, I don't know about that one. A typical <laughs> boy, though. Typical. Okay, so when I was in high school, we had to map the timeline of the Earth and we had to, you know, stick pieces of paper together mm. and then, you know, use rulers and map out the timeline. And it's all about just showing like how tiny humans have been around for. And I Mm. think it was pretty much the wall of the science lab we were in and maybe two centimetres at the end was humanity. And that is this Anthropocene epoch, right? Mm. It's just so crazy. It's it's crazy in that it shows how much of an effect we've had upon the planet in such a short amount of time. Well, we like to think we've had... Oh well, we well we we potentially are the most detrimental species to the planet up to date. I I I wasn't around when the dinosaurs the were dinosaur. around. They could have been burning coal, and we didn't even know about it. But yeah, the Anthropocene is the era or the epoch that is upon us right now, and marks that of what effect humans as a species have had upon the planet. And there is an Anthropocene transition project um, convened by Kenneth McLeod at the UTS Business School. Um, so I caught up with him to find out exactly what all of this means. Where did the term Anthropocene come from? Well, it, it, it's been used for a couple of decades now, uh, but strictly speaking, the term arises from geology. The notion is that human interventions or human impacts on the biosphere are now so great that they will be seen in the strata of the geological strata in in the future. So you mean when we're talking geologically, like a physical impact a on the A physical planet. impact, yes. There's been some debate, which is uh, not all that useful, about when did this begin. Just this morning I saw an article in Nature by Clive Hamilton saying this is a rather pointless debate. The question is not when humans started to modify ecosystems, which we've done from the moment we came out of the trees on the savannah in Africa. But when did we have a global impact, start to have a global impact? And that's measured usually now from um, the immediate post-war period from about 1945. And, of course, the atomic bomb testing and uh, bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki during the war have left a, a trace across the whole planet in terms of radioactive isotopes that are that can be detected just about anywhere on the planet. But the really significant thing about this post-war period is that it's been it's characterized by what's called the Great Acceleration, that just about every index of human impact has gone into an exponential growth since the late 40s, early 50s. What does the Anthropocene or this transition say about us as a species? <laughs> well... <laughs> it could say lots of things. It could, um, it could say that there's never been a species that has been so rapacious, so unresponsive to ecosystem feedback as the human species. So that we're ignoring, we've been blithely ignoring uh, the consequences of the of of the way we impact the environment. And in terms of adaptation, we're winning. 
and that's not a good thing. <laughs> you know, um, uh, some time ago, uh, I forget who it was now, but uh, there was a, a report came out that said that um, if you were, uh, some Canadian scholars uh, done some research, that if you were to measure the mass of uh, all the animals alive on the planet now, something like 60% are animals that are used by humans uh, mm. in agriculture, 30% are humans, and the, the actual mass of wild life forms on the planet is now only about 3%. Wow. That complete and utter yeah. just changed the face. Yeah. Of the other species on the planet. Yes, it's that's freaky. right, because increasingly they, there's just no space for other species. So when people talk about the Anthropocene, some people are talking about the Anthropocene extinction event in the same way that paleontologists look back at the Cambrian extinction event where 90% of the life on the planet was wiped out and that we have moved into another extinction event, but we are the agents of it. When it comes to humans as a species, aren't we inherently unsustainable? Well, many, m many people would argue that, uh, yes, and that's why we, we, we need to rethink these practices and, and, and not just think that, oh, it's simply a question of new technology or whatever. Yeah, new technology is part of a cultural change. But it's, but it's only part of it. I mean, we, we need to be also thinking about how we experience our connection with the earth. And we're, you know, our culture is pretty alienated from the rest of the, of the life processes of the planet. We've, as we said before, we, we behave as though we stand outside of nature. But it's funny because we have the capacity to be able to do that. Yes. And to, and to get to that point where well, hopefully we symbiotically we exist. The big test. <laughs> yes. And for the work that you're doing with the Anthropocene Transition Project, mm -hmm. what, what, is, what is the goal here or, or what are you trying to unravel in this project? Uh, when we use the word Anthropocene Transition, we're not talking about transition in the sense that people talk about transition to a low-carbon economy. We're talking about a process of moving into the unknown that's a, a historical transition, comparable, for example to the move from a medieval worldview to the Renaissance. It was a fundamental reframing of, how, of our understanding of what it is to be human. And that's the kind of transition we're facing, a fundamental cultural transformation. Now, in this project, um, we're, not, we're not advocating that people have to pay attention to this and not be campaigning around... Um, uh, opposition to coal seam gas or, or uh, invasive coal mining or any of the other things that are urgent that people get behind and, and, and work on. We're saying let's extend a view of what's necessary for m further generations and think what are the changes we need to make now that are going to change the way humans perform as part of the web of life on the planet for generations. And, and the area that this project is particularly focusing on is called our professional and social practices. A, a colleague here at this university recently said to me in relation to engineers, he said, we are producing engineers who are not equipped for the world that currently exists, let alone the world that will exist in 50 years. 
how do we need to rethink our professional practice as educators, for example, our practice as lawyers or as architects and town planners? Clearly an approach that sees sustainability as something to be accomplished building by building isn't going to cut it. We need a whole systems approach to how we reconceptualize the urban ecology. Kenneth McLeod, convener of the Anthropocene Transition Project at the UTS Business School. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Lee Bader. See you next week.